This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 21. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 21 today, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Hello, Jules. Hope you're doing well, my friend. Anyhow, um, where are we at today? Well, let's see. I've been spending hour upon hour cleaning up hard drives. I don't know about you all, but I've got a lot of hard drives sitting around. Clients, you know, they just kind of leave them with you. And uh, then they disappear. The clients, not the drives that starts to become a little bit of a hassle because then, you know, your studio space starts to become littered with random drives and they pile up and you don't really have all the time in the day to go back and plug them all in all the time and rotate through them and make sure they're working. So I decided to go through a little bit of a cleaning house period. So I'm not getting rid of the drives per se, but what I am doing is, of course, calling out to all my clients and saying, hey, you know, I've got this drive, or can you come get it? Or can I mail it to you or ship it to you? And then what I'm doing, I'm such a pack rat, I, I, I needed kind of a, a new system of backing up and getting everything uh, kind of more secure in case of catastrophe. And I've appeared on panels on backing up. I've had discussions in uh, classrooms uh, about recording and, and backing up and man, sometimes you just got to put your money where your mouth is. So uh, this is not a paid endorsement. So do not perceive it as that. But I, I, my friend Russell Frost did me a solid and he sold me his old Drobo. And if you're familiar with that, it's, you know, it's basically a little raid. It's their raid system is kind of unique to them, to that company. But he sold me an older one. It's just got Firewire 800 and USB. And I've got it hooked up via USB. It's got four drives in it. And I've just been taking the drives from the clients. And we're talking like drives that have like, I don't know, 100 gigs, 250 gigs of space. And then just transferring the Pro Tools sessions off of those drives and putting them into, you know, dedicated client folders on the Drobo. And so the deal with that is, is if one of those drives goes out, this thing is, you know, apparently prepared to repair itself or have some sense of redundancy. Long story short, my ass is covered in that department. But you might ask, what happens if there's a fire and or a flood or whatever, an earthquake? My solution there, and once again, not a paid endorsement, but a product I use is called Crash Plan. It's kind of like Carbonite, you know, just a variation on that theme. So I have Crash Plan always backing up once daily. Uh, or anytime there's a file change, backing up the entire Drobo. And that Drobo, of course, is expandable. You can, you know, you just, I think the, the one I've got, I think you can pack it with four, four terabyte drives for a total capacity of around 16 terabytes. I got to tell you, I'm pretty pleased so far. I'm storing all the working class audio files on there, some, all my photos of my kids and videos, and the whole thing is backed up to a cloud. So I'm feeling good about myself here. So <laughs> feeling good about my own personal strategy with this. And then I've got all these drives and hopefully I can uh, nail down all these clients and say, so you need to come pick up your drive. So that's my drive story for you today. I'll tell you what's not working for me that's acting a little quirky and it may have been acting quirky for you. It's iTunes. What the hell is going on with iTunes? Very frustrating. Um, so if you are a subscriber your feed should be okay. You should be getting all the WCAs as they come out, you know, with minor delay, minimal delay. What is a little confusing is if you go to Working Class Audio on iTunes and check it out, it only lists 10 episodes and it actually stops at Ross Hogarth's uh, episode, which was 17. So I don't know what the hell is going on. But anyways, I've emailed support over at iTunes and I've dug into all the other stuff that surrounds it in terms of, you know, where we store the website or the, you know, the website, where we store the podcast and all that stuff. All roads seem to lead to iTunes in this case. So if you're having trouble, I apologize. 
it seems most of you'd go to the website and download the show anyway. So that's a good thing. So you can kind of avoid that goofiness, but uh, have patience with it. If you are a subscriber on iTunes, you should be getting it. I'm a subscriber, yes, to my own podcast. I have to keep an, you know, keep an eye out for what's going on. So there, that's it. Backing up iTunes. There it is. Okay, so of course now you're wondering, well, who is Doug Kalmeyer, who I see listed on the website? Well, Doug is another, just like Don Gunn was, another fan suggestion. When I reached out on Facebook several weeks ago and asked you all what you thought, who should be on the show, and Doug's name came up, so he graciously agreed to be on the show. So we had a nice Skype call. He's over in Virginia, and we chatted. So what's going to be a little different about Doug, and I'm really excited about this, is we're starting to branch out because Doug does have studio experience and has made records. In fact, he's made some records with some artists on Discord Records, one of, one of my favorite labels that has uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, Fugazi. Not to, not to get off the topic here, but uh, so he's got the studio experience, but he's got a ton of live sound experience. And the guy has worked with a number of artists, uh, including Fantagram, uh, Blonde Redhead, Flaming Lips, Shellac, Sunny Day Real Estate, Rancid, Damwells, OK Go, uh, Beauty Pill, X Hex. So these are some of the bands he's worked with and some of the venues or, or uh, festivals that he's worked on or worked at with some of these acts include Madison Square Garden, Radio City Music Hall, Lollapalooza, Coachella, Outside Lands, Bonnaroo, Austin City Limits. And not only that, but he's also with his, you know, as any touring artist does appear on late night shows, at least, you know, some of the American shows, he's worked on Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien, David Letterman. He, he's got he's got so much experience. It's just, it's pretty mind-blowing, actually. Uh, for me, you know, for a, a guy that works in the studio all the time, to hear about what Doug does as far as, you know, doing uh, front of house and tour management and production management, He's uh he's definitely a rat, a road rat for sure. Road dog, I should say, actually. So that's it. Welcome to number 21. Let's let's go and talk to Doug Kalmeyer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being here. Doug Kalmeyer. Hey Doug. Hey, how you doing, man? Good. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me. You've had a pretty amazing lineup of folks you've been talking to. I've been checking it out and it's been great. A lot of high profile people, a lot of not so high profile people, but people that are doing great work nonetheless that, you know, maybe they're not household names, but, you know, mm. they're still critical. I'm just pulling up your website here as my reference point my resume is yeah, that it yeah it's but it's really great because it just gives me a broad overview yeah. amongst the other things i found online it's amazing yeah. when you google somebody what you can come up with oh my well that <laughs> that resume is funny i'm glad it finally got used for something it kind of got made last year i was on tour with a really professional people and they had these great resumes and they asked me for my resume and I was like, no, I never made one, never needed to because the business, you know, it seems uh, if you start working in it, especially the touring end of it, I guess the live end of it is one of the reasons you're talking to me, obviously, because that's what I've been up to mostly. Yeah. As of late, once you start working, it's interesting. It kind of comes in waves. Um, you'll start working for one artist and then, you know, you'll befriend other artists that open up for them and then, they might hire you later on. So it's always flowed for me that way. I've been very, very lucky, I guess. So in the world of live sound, if you're working for whether it's an opening act or the headlining act, what mm -hmm. is it about? I mean, the band can never truly hear what's going on out front because they're playing. They hear how it sounds for for the other act and they base their decisions of whether or not they want to hire you on that as well as whether or not they get along with you. Is that right? Yeah, that. And I mean, I think the, you know, the biggest factors is just, you know, feedback from their critical peers that they trust, that they know, you know, they'll come see the show. And that's how I uh, ended up with one of my longest so far clients. I did a 12, about 12 year period of working with this one artist um, as my focus. I got the gig because Someone they trusted came to the gig, saw them and, you know, knew I was mixing them, I think, twice over a course while they were touring in a season. They came through twice, maybe, I think. And 
you know, they said, well, you know, why don't you add, they were asking him, you know, who should we have? And they were, he was like, why don't you ask him? He's done you guys a couple of times and sounded really great. That kind of thing can go a long way, I guess. My experience in live sound is nothing. I mean, I've, I've done live sound like once and was like, Oh, I, I don't know if I like this. I can't turn things down when I want to, <laughs> meaning yeah. I, can, I can't turn the whole mix down and go, Oh, let's take an air break. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to learn how to take breaks during the night, especially the loud nights and have the things that you're disposed to do that. Like, um, you know, firing range earplugs or, or, you know, the shotgun headphones are great because you can just pop them off and on to give yourself a little break. Really, throughout a night, you only have to expose yourself to the one set you're doing, really. Everyone else can protect themselves while that's happening. So, you know, you're exposing yourself to something for an hour. I actually like to go out and see other bands and try to, you know, if it's not too loud, kind of get an idea of what's going to happen in the room or whatever, you know. When it's a great, great show you're invisible. That's the ideal. But when things go wrong... Everybody's turning around going, who's running sound? Oh, yeah. It's been in been, been a fun way. So, yeah. yeah. It's a different world, controlled environment. But same tools and same principles and tools from studio to live to a degree. Let's talk a, a little bit about your past because what I've read about you is that you're a musician, you you do studio work, and you do live work. Is it a safe assumption that the musician part of you came first? Uh, yes, that would be a safe assumption. But I think that I always had a curiosity and I wrecked many an amplifier taking it apart. The first PA I ever really had was a bass head that had three inputs because it was one of those weird old like Holmes amps or something. Yeah. You know, so you could put like a, a, a vocal mic and a guitar and a bass in it. So I pulled the head out of that without shocking myself to death and, and got rid of the speaker that was all blown up. And then my dad gave me a pair of Sansui speakers and I haphazardly wired it into those. And it was actually a pretty good sounding little vocal PA for kids. You know, I was 11 years old or whatever, So because we had to have it. So I think the technology grew out of necessity. I ended up in engineering because just hand in hand kind of grew that way. Okay. What's your primary instrument? I started on bass guitar. I got one when I was uh, 11 years old yeah, on Christmas, I guess. Yeah. So really, I guess the PA thing started when I was 12. Got the bass at 11, turned 12, did my first gig a few months later. 400 people at a you know school talent show. Oh, yeah. And they're telling us, don't curse. Don't curse on the microphone, you know. Where was this? What what where'd you grow up? Well, I was born overseas in Singapore, but we spent a lot of time in Virginia and up in Maine because my dad was a parts contractor for ships for the United States government. He worked for civil service. So we kind of followed around military, but we weren't military because he did parts procurement for naval vessels. But mostly Virginia. What part Virginia, of Virginia? Okay, because I noticed there's some activity online with your past with regards to Discord records. So I was like, okay, obviously there's a Washington connection here. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, they they did Discord direct and they've always been happy to put out people's stuff for them. So we've done stuff like that. And then um, a bunch of artists that I've worked with have been on Discord records. You know, I'm friends with, you know, that whole kind of group of DC people because, you know, I grew up doing sound for all their bands and seeing their bands and stuff. Do you currently live in DC proper? No, uh, we bought as close to my wife's uh, 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 teaching as we could. She's a, a teacher in uh, Arlington, Virginia. Okay. So we're in Annandale. We're about, I could be in the city in about, I guess, 20 minutes, be downtown. Did you spend any serious professional time as a musician prior to entering into the world of audio? Yeah, I mean, up until about 2006, 2000, I mean, sorry, 95. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, 95, 96. Sorry, wrong era. <laughs> up until about 95, 96. Boy, where'd those 10 years go? Oh, yeah, down the touring hole. But um, until about 95, 96, my main focus in life was being just a, a, a bass player, mostly. Okay. Composer, bass player. Although by that time, I guess I started doing pretty serious recording by the time I turned 20. I was in a band that put out a CD in like 1989, 1990, which was pretty big back then because, you know, it was just before it became commercially viable for everyone to do it. It was like right the crest of that little wave post vinyl. So we had a bit of a success with that regional. We were like on cellar door booking, which, you know, they did all those hippie bands, Grateful Dead and stuff like that. Yeah, that was a fun little ride. Um, but then, you know, that's the thing is when the band thing ends, you know, you, I was thinking I'd find another band. So I was like, what am I going to do? And my friends were like, oh, well, you know, you should just mix our band. So I made this record for a band because I by that time we had a 
analog studio. Sorry, I'm kind of jumping around here. In the That's okay. Uh, yeah, I guess it developed through that. I guess the main thing that got me into engineering, too, was um, two things. Growing up playing on stages, feedback, hate it. So I learned the frequencies really quick, really young. I would always work with this one sound company. You know, we do like, you know, whatever up to 500 person club with them and his rig. And I would always just step up before we went on and stick my mouth on the mic and go through all of it and finally figured out, you know, the relations of a graph to it. Cause we had a graph in our rehearsal space. And, and so that happened. And then we also paid a lot of money to make a record that I hated that, the way it sounded. So I had to learn how to become a studio engineer. So yeah. necessity and frustration yeah. with seeing it done wrong. Yeah. And by that time we had hooked up with another friend's band and he had a 16-track, one-inch MS-16 and a Ramza 820 board. And I still know where that gear is. It's down, down the street from me here. And that kind of got me into that. So I want to kind of segment it off into live sound and studio sound. And I'm trying to want to know, like, did they run on, like, in parallel or did they... Or in or were they in tandem? Were they like, okay, first I did studio and then I did, you know, live well, stuff? I'd say it was pretty tandem, you know, from being the kid, not having any money for anything and, you know, putting that little rig together I told you about when I was a kid. And that carried us a couple of years, you know, with the, the speakers my dad gave me, which smelled like pee. The reason he gave them to me is because the dog peed on them. <laughs> and so, like, you know, by the time I'm 16, I'm like, okay, you know, that's amazing. I guess I had a group of friends and that was our thing every day after school, you know, and we didn't go to basketball or football or anything. We went and played for three or four hours. We finally saved up enough money for sure. Vocal master PA with the crazy reverb, spring reverb that thing has. Yeah. And then um, the guitar player and his dad built that radio shack guide speaker that had like two 15s and a three tweeter array in it. And that was actually a pretty good cabinet. It was cool. Him and his pop built it too, you know? So they built one of those and then we went on from there. So I guess it was it was kind of tandem because, you know, we had to do that weird stuff. And at the same time, you know, I remember the first time I seriously recorded was just in my basement with a little cassette recorder. And we moved it around the room till you could kind of hear everything so we could demo for a school dance or whatever. So that that kind of grew out there. And that's right when the, the Tascam 4 track you know, this is the 80s, I guess. God, mm-hmm. I'm dating myself, but, you know, it's uh, 82, 84, sometime around then, a few years right after that, four track came out. And then you could kind of almost afford a used one or whatever. And then out of that, just kind of went to that experience of uh, when I was 18, I graduated high school and joined this other band. And we went and recorded that record, you know, I was pretty young. Kind of figured that out from there, you know, I needed to learn the stuff to be able to sustain because... The other thing is, you know, I couldn't afford, you know, recording studios, especially then for quality experience, buy a studio or Q studios in Springfield at, you know, $85 an hour or something like that on a $100 a night gig. If you're lucky, you know, you play 15, 20 times a month. If you're really lucky and really pushing it, trying to get by and then really make something that was really tough. The climate changed with the digital revolution. So we're at the point where, you know, I made this couple records and we had kind of conglomerated a studio in the house. After 95, when I went to the audio side, what happened was, is what really got me into the live work in a funny way is, so my drummer from the band I was in that dissolved, he got in another band and they put out some singles on Discord Records. Those were recorded at the house with the 16 track we had gotten off the one guy and the 820 and the realistic you know, Radio Shack PZM mics and whatever, whatever else we could get, right? So we made those and then, you know, they did some stuff at Inner Ear as well, which I think Discord paid for. Actually, funny story. One of my first serious studio things was I went in because I was doing live sound for these guys. This is before we did the full length record on the 16 track and they were doing a single for Discord. And we go in and I'm going to Inner Ear and like Ian McKay's there and Don's and Tara's there and they're... Like looking at me and they're like, yeah, this is Doug. You know, he works with us last. He knows what's going on. And Don's like, okay, here, sit down and mix it. And I'm like, crap. So what am I supposed to do here? Because he had kind of pre-set up everything. So I think it was going to work no matter what, you know. He had it really dialed, you know. But I was like, hmm. So I just kind of pulled everything up and went with it. They were really gracious about it. It worked out really well. It was, I think he just totally set me up to win no matter what. With <laughs> on. Don, Don it, is the nicest guy. Yeah, yeah. But it was a little intimidating to have those guys in there, you know. I've been touring for a long time and everything, you know, still to this day. Where are you from on tour? Oh, D.C. Oh, Discord. You know, it's, 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 the, yeah. uh, it's the bar. They set a pretty high bar, I guess. So. When you were at uh, Inner Ear with Don and Ian, what was the name of the band you were working uh, that with? That was the Norman Mayer group. 
And that was Jen Simo and Kathy Cashel and, and Greg Shevish. That was an interesting kind of group. Originally, it was uh, three ladies, and they kind of came out of, I think, a part of the riot girl scene or whatever that was going on there, you know, yeah. to a degree. I mean, they might argue, we weren't that. But, you know, I mean, it was, you know, empowerment, feminism, which I think there should be more of in the music community. I think there should be more women touring. There should be more women doing stuff. I would support any that would step up and do it because there's not enough. I have to really work hard to find female engineers to talk with. Anybody you know that that oh, you yeah. that you uh, suggest we we could talk about that, or feel free to always email me about that. I'll, I'll email you some contacts of some some women who are up to some really great stuff, and they're super quality. And at this point, you're working in studios with bands. You're also doing live sound with bands. You know, at that point in your life, what percentage? live versus studio were you doing well more live shows for money but like kind of living in the studio when i wasn't doing live shows Mm -hmm. you know i was still writing and recording a lot of my own material i would say another thing that got me really into the idea of the studio was a bandmate turned me on to dub reggae one day Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that really changed everything because it was the removal of the melody aspect, I mean, not really to a d- degree. Of course, it's ultimately important to have that dropped in, but, you know, using the studio as a, as a tool. That's why I still love analog boards, because the, the tactile control, the instant tactile control, that's, that's an amazing thing. Um, but so that influenced that. Um, I guess the key point here, and maybe this is something that'll play into the, you know, the whole point of being able to afford to do music and, you know, being working class is, you know, the fact that, you know, there's diversity, I guess there's three paths I was kind of taking. and I didn't even realize it till now, you know. Um, so you've got the live, you've got the composition and performance stuff, and then you've got the studio stuff encapsulating kind of the full spectrum of, you know, audio and in, in the industry t- we're talking about. And I think the reason you're going to see more of that, you're going to see a lot more of that going on is is because everybody's got to learn it because, you know, it's just a it's just an affordability thing, you know, especially now understanding all that stuff and not being a slave to any of it, because, you know, now I can make a full product and release it, you know, especially with the Internet now, you know, in your resume, you list out all these technologies that you're familiar with, whether it's Mm. a broad selection of DAWs to consoles I, I mean, it just seems like you have been inundated with all of this because, or immersed, I should say. Mm. Well, uh, I would say inundated is also a great way to put it because to a degree it's it's sink or swim, especially in the live world because, you know, I might show up somewhere and no matter what the spec says, you know, I might be in wherever and it might be something else. And you've got to get a, you got to get your grips on, you know, whatever you have to work with or maybe something fails and you have to switch to something else. Pretty amazing the work you've done. I mean, you've worked it as far as live sound. I mean, you've worked at Madison Square Garden, Radio City Music Hall, Lollapalooza, Coachella, Sasquatch Outside Lands, Bonnaroo. I mean, you've worked in some pretty heavy environments live wise and i see that you worked doing stuff on jimmy fallon jimmy kimmel conan o'brien david letterman the thing about those shows is usually you know it's it's union and the house engineers have to handle the mix and at that point it's like i'm a go-between i have to sit in the mix room with them and say well actually this section you know it's supposed to be just the vocoder so you kind of got to meet the vocal right there you know or whatever interesting thing is that needs to happen that's more like a little direction and that's a really tough one you know sitting back there's reasons for all that the hierarchy of you know union and how all that labor and stuff works i don't have my union card or license or brotherships you know and those things you know it's just like managing equipment and, you know, technical writers and making sure that, you know, everybody has all the information they need for the show to come off right. Some of the people that you've worked with, Shellac, Rancid, Sunny Day Real Estate, The Damwells, yeah. Flaming Lips, Blonde Redhead. I mean, the interesting thing is that's part of like, it's just the live thing. It's just being there for all that stuff to fall in place. Because like the Shellac tour came from Blonde Redhead, who I was touring with. I was with them for 12 years. That's my longest standing client. I don't go from really band to band. There's a lot of people who really work at that. You know, they just keep themselves working hardcore. And I made a kind of a conscious decision pretty early on that I only wanted to work with people that really lit the fire for me personally, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just saying that that's my preference and there's nothing wrong with going and doing a million shows because that's work, you know, that's what you do. And you can give people a quality thing that they need, whether it's monitor engineering or tour managing or, or whatever. But for me personally, I have to keep the art important to me. 
that's just my personal thing. So like being in those positions, like the shellac thing came around, I was on tour with Blonde Redhead and we did a bunch of shows with shellac. Corey from Touch and Go used to always mix their shows. And then there was another gentleman, his name's escaping me. I think his name might've been Greg, but anyway, neither of them were available. So they were like, Hey, we need these dates. And I was like, Oh, sure. I'll fill in those for you. So I went on tour with them, you know, which was awesome for a week or whatever. And then same thing with uh, sunny day real estate. My friend, Nick Pelichotto couldn't do a few weeks of touring with them. So I filled in and I did some work with them. I guess it's just about keeping yourself open and keeping yourself out there. I've been on tour as a musician. I've never been on tour as an audio guy. Mm. So, you know, I'm not completely unfamiliar with the situation. But in this day and age, talk to me about the economy of it. Talk to me about how does that work financially? Here's a pretty standard thing, I think, for touring folk. A lot of them I know, um, at least what I do is, you know, we do a day rate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you a range for one client now, but that's not how it started. So, you know, that's where the love side, like I was saying, I was only going to work with people I really dug because, you know, at, at the starting point, like with Blonde Redhead or with Fantagram, Blonde Redhead was a 12 year run. You know, it started at $800 for, you know, three weeks tour or something. But by the end, you know, I was getting $1,800 a week, say, okay. you know. Plus per diem. Plus know. per diem. How much is per diem typically? That's really dependent upon different scenarios too, you know, because there's per diem, there's buyout, there's things like that. So, you know, maybe you'd get one amount of per diem on any given day, say $25 or so, or say on a, on a show day, you might get $20 per diem plus you get like a $15 buyout. So that day you might get 35, you know, because they give you a buyout for dinner instead of giving you crappy in-house food or whatever. Mm, okay. And, you know, that can all get offset by a, a quality rider and a good tour manager who understands the rider because they're going to make sure you have food because you're working all day. Say you do a noon to one load in, a one to two load out or something like that AM, you know, on a typical tour day if you're doing bus and trailer, say. Okay. You know, where you're not putting in PA or anything. You're just supplying, you know, like maybe desks and backline and maybe a light rig. Are you mostly doing front of house or are you doing monitors? I do front of house. I've done a little bit of monitors. Um, I did like that rancid thing um, that came off the sunny day real estate tour because the tour manager was really cool and recommended me for it. So I did some monitors for them. But I'm really a front of house guy at heart. Do you like think, okay, I'm on this tour. It's going to end on such and such a date. While you're on tour, are you doing business while on tour trying to figure out okay, I need another tour after this or two tours. For, for my scenario and the way I chose to do it, working only with those artists I really wanted to work with, giving them that focus and choosing the right bands gives you huge amounts of, of work and tour time. You're looking at, you know, ideally at least a couple seasons a year mm -hmm. of touring, you know? Um, so working that way with that particular artist gives me a base schedule to work around. So that's kind of a good thing. So it's not necessarily all provided the management can keep up on keeping me abreast of what the plans are for the next six months out at a time, at least. It gives me a solid footing to know how to work the other aspects of my schedule around it. And I guess that's the bottom line is when you take this type of touring work supporting an artist, it's kind of got to be your kind of your main focus, you know, as far as um, scheduling and time allotment in your life goes. And then looking at that around that, yeah, um, then I can look and see how much time I have off and, you know, how I want to balance that. Always riding on the road. Technology has been great. I mean, you know, with a laptop and some interfaces, you know, and, you know, always pick up a cheap guitar or something or a bass or synth or something in the guitar center, you know, while you're on, on the road or overseas. There's tons of music stores everywhere. That's a fun hunt. So, you know, you can always grab stuff and be creative. Life on the road is a complex one. Mm -hmm. It's not just doing your job. It's, mm -hmm. it's, there's a lot of navigation of everything from interfacing with management. And obviously it's key that you get that information from management so you can plan everything mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. And then obviously there's the health aspects, eating right or eating poorly Right. Uh, drinking or not drinking, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I spend the most on food. I don't mess around with it. I just do it because 
you have to. And then, you know, you got to write off as much as you can, but, you know, you got to be fair and do it the right way. But it, write off as much as you can spend it up front. Just go for it. It's your health. It's all you got. So you're saying you don't skimp on good food? Uh-uh. No, no. I'll spend dumb money on food. I always have. It's the one thing. I'll allow myself that vice. Mm-hmm. It's worth it. <laughs> it's yeah. totally worth it. But you still never know what you're going to get, you know, but you got to try, you know, so I think that's a that's a good thing to get into, you know, talking about um, the business aspect of it, keeping together and the schedule is so okay, so I have my base schedule of I know I'm going to work with this artist, and I'm going to give them my focus. And, you know, it could be, you know, I I would say if you really want to give anything, you're all, you know, you're looking at like a 10 year run, say, you know. Really? Wow. I mean, well, look at any business. If you wanted to open a business and have a successful business, how would you look at it? You know? Oh, yeah. Okay. And maybe I'm being silly because a lot of people wouldn't take that risk along with the band. They'd rather be able to apply their skills, say the best equipment and only want to work with the best artists at the time, you know, whereas I'm more focused on I want to help build something from the ground up and see it to its full long-term development, you know? I don't think there's enough of that. Everything is so short-term these days. It's I unconsciously was thinking that. I was thinking, oh, well, okay, well, what's the lifespan of the band or their, or, you know, the tour support that they get or don't get? So, but I mean, that makes sense. You, yeah. as you put it, you know, you, right. you well, plan I mean, for the long-term. You know, a lot of people laugh and say, I've been through that. That's a fairy tale. And yes, it is a fairy tale, but, you know, I haven't had a day job. I don't have any money, but I've had this amazing life and I've traveled around the entire world a bunch of times, although I still have yet to set foot in freaking Africa, which I really want to do badly. Um, I'm really lucky and shared so much culture with so many people. You know, that's that's the biggest payment. I guess my thing with bands, the way my gut feeling is, I mean, I know there's everybody's got to do a job and it's got to be about a job. But if you know what, if you don't believe in the band you're working with 100 percent, just just go away. (laughs) Yeah. Get out, get away from me. If you don't really believe in this 100%, it's just going to pull it down. So anything, if you're going to give it your time, give it 100% like anything else. So I guess it's like, you know, you go to work at, at, a, at a job and you want to do your best within the structure of your team and the team in this, and for you is everybody involved from the band and all the crew. So if you slack, it really pulls the whole crew down. And it pulls, pulls the whole operation down. Yeah, absolutely, you know, or just your belief system. I mean, we all go through our things or physically or whatever. We have our problem. I was involved in one of those, you know, this will come around to having insurance because I was lucky I had it. But, you know, I was involved in one of those uh, PA collapses in 2012 where I had a full 760 array come down on me inside a truss rig and put me out of commission for a while for a season. I lost a season. I lost an inch in height and I'm not supposed to pick up stuff that's too heavy, but I've been pushing it lately and it's been pretty, feeling pretty good. So. Oh my God. Wow. It can happen to you. So those three facets we were talking about, we have our, you know, musicianship, which is where it all came from, that love of music and that understanding of frequency and composition, which I think is really integral to being able to mix music and whether or not you are educated textbook wise in that or not, that still has, I still fully believe you have to have those elements of experience to be able to propel the art form forward. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, we have that, you know, the the aspect of musicianship. Then we have our aspect of, you know, the, the, the live sound thing, which grew from necessity, you know, out of musicianship to serve musicianship, you know, make things sound as good as they can when you're doing the live presentation thing, you know, And then you have the other aspect, which would be your studio stuff, which, you know, I still do. You know, I had it was cool. I worked with this band recently that had a record come out, Split Discord. And I'm trying to remember the other label. I can't really remember off the top of my head, but it was um, Alarms and Controls. It was a band which was members of like Discord bands and stuff like that. Circus, Lupus, Crown, Hate, Ruin and, um, uh, you know, some hardcore bands and stuff like that. Um, so you've got those three aspects, but you know, you have to organize your business to a degree. Luckily with my long-term artists, it's developed to a W2 or W4 tax form with them for keeping track of that. For the art side, I've uh, created a publishing company. Um, I'm a BMI affiliate right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I like BMI because it's a one-time payment for establishing your publishing as opposed to periodic payments. So I have that. And um, what I'm doing is I'm creating a 
catalog now of uh, music that I've done from the years I'm mastering it. I've got an ISRC license, so I can do metadata encoding for um, following the, the works because the hope is that they will be used in commercial use for maybe film, television, mm-hmm. things like that. And that'll become part of that um, website that you see uh, when it's all ready. It's, everything's established now and I'm getting everything registered. The audio side of the business that I'm doing for income. With the live thing, the other facet of it, what I've had to do here um, in Virginia is I've created a small uh, company. And it's for any side work that I get. Say I'm home and I get the call to do what I'm doing right now, which is I'm working with this group, Beauty Pill, and um, they just have a record that just came out. We're doing we're in a black box theater and we're doing a 5.2 live surround sound system where the band actually encircles the audience. It's a limited audience number. Mm-hmm. And each one has a mono single point source, you know, PA speaker, basically. And there's uh, 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 subs around the room as well two separate subs, you know, one for left, one for right, kind of, although it's in the round, so it's just two zones. And I've spent the last bunch of days programming that, and they called me for that last week. I'll get paid for that. That'll go on my private company. I never make more than $10,000 a year on that company, so I don't have to file quarterly. I can file yearly without any penalties because it's a pain in the butt to do quarterly. But that's just Virginia. You have to look at your state laws to see if you want to establish a local business, what your tax liabilities are going to be. Also under that, um, you know, I have a home studio here where I do mixing work for people. I do serious work here as well. So, you know, I get the income from that. That might go towards my 1099. Now, I know at that $10,000 limit when it gets around there, I've got to start looking at, you know, if I do that much work, which I haven't been able to because I just finished a 15-month tour. But that in claiming that in not going over 10000 I take into account that, you know, this space in my home is a write-off, so I know how much that is. I've got a really good accountant to advise me on these things. So, you know, home studio space, you know, repairs, climate control in it. You know, if you're really using it to make money as a business, use it as an asset, write-off, property, expense, whatever, you know. Insurance on the studio, on the gear in here, the cost of the gear, you know, it's all part of my, my company there, so... It gets complicated and it's and for somebody like me who's pretty simple to be honest, you know, which is why I've tried to keep it simple with the artists and only follow my my feelings on the quality of what they're doing as opposed to just trying to do as much work as possible. Mm-hmm. But you know, those things can really help you out and keep things legal, you know, claiming everything you do can be really good, even though it hurts a little up front at the end of the year, you might get a surprise and then, you know, you're off the radar and you're, you're, you're playing your part and you're keeping it legal. And a good reason to do that too is, you know, you've got to get your credit lines and going things like that. And you've got, you've got to get a good income credit going, you know, you've got to, now you, you're thinking about things like say health insurance, you have to have health insurance. So you've got to account for that, you know, so you got to take it kind of seriously because you never know when a PA speaker is going to get. Never know when you're going to get toppled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, in a windstorm. Um, interesting things can happen. You know, if you're doing outside work, you you got to make sure you have your workman's comp covered. Luckily, the company I was working for, one of the reasons I work for them is they pay your workman's comp for you if you're on the clock. If you're an independent in Virginia, you have to pay workman's comp yearly. If you get hurt in an accident like that without workman's comp, there's no recourse really. You know, you get a percentage, you get a third of your annual claimed income in Virginia of the period you're knocked out of out of business. Do you pay for your own health insurance? Uh, yeah, we have a plan. I'm, I'm, you know, we're paying through my wife's, she's in the Arlington County school system. So we're paying through that. Okay. Okay. So that's really good for me there. You know, I did not have health insurance for a lot of my years growing up, which I'm really lucky. I never had any super serious injuries. I mean, I've had some, you know, and I've got some scars, but you know, luckily no operations or anything like that were necessary during those periods of my life. That was the late 80s, early 90s. Things are a little different now, too. You know? You're in a position where you can really take elements of the live and those experiences and bring them to the studio and vice versa. Yes. Um, I've done a little bit of work, especially now. It's easier than ever if you've got like um, I've been working a lot on Avid systems. I don't really have any super preference as far as that hardware interface is going to be concerned. Um, but there's some nice things about Avid systems like SC48, I mean, okay, you know, they're not, you know, whatever, you know, they're not the, the most highest um, quality converters available or whatever, but 
you know, they work, they work every time just about. And, and, you know, with the SC48, say you can, you know, plug in one firewire cable and stream 32 tracks of audio to whatever DAW you want, which I'll be doing tomorrow night's Friday. I'm doing mixing sound for a band called X Hex, which is Mary Timoney from Helium and, uh, some, a couple other, uh, women artists and they, um, and I'm I'm going to record it for Merge Records, so I'll be sending off those files with them on a hard drive after the show. Interesting. So you have it, and real easy, you know, and hopefully, you know, they'll like it and hand me a check. Yeah. I'm curious about, like, what, uh, besides the recording capabilities, are there techniques or philosophies that can bounce back and forth between and complement studio and live for you that maybe, the uh, say, a dedicated studio engineer doesn't really think about? It's, um, things are technology and the quality of systems and the way things are going, it's getting closer for the, for those two, um, the two approaches, which I would say are definitively separate, different approaches to using the same gear to, for an end result, um, live being one approach and studio being another, um, for obvious reasons, um, the live stuff is more about control and, um, minimizing things like bleed, whereas in the studio, you know, you might send up a mic 20 feet away because it sounds so awesome and make, you know, like a talk, talk record, you know, and run everything through the one 20 foot mic away. You know? mm-hmm. But the crossover is getting closer to a degree, I think, with the quality of audio systems and, um, you know, the, the use of line arrays and stuff like that. Although, you know, there's a huge conversation we could get into there, which we probably shouldn't about the quality of sound and how different it is. Well, you know, it may mess what this podcast is about, right? But um, I think it's getting easier to apply a lot of those things. And it, with the use of plugins and digital, the crossover point is obviously closer than ever, you know, being able to port it. And the thing is just now that the process is, processing is powerful enough to run those plugins in real time without incurring latencies that are throw things too far to make it worth using, you know, and stability, of course. Yeah. And it's, you know, some of the products that I see that always fascinate me are like, you know, maybe it's, you know, a company's board who that can interface with an iPad and you can go out in the audience with an iPad or walk around the venue and control these things. Mm. I don't know if you spend any time with that. Oh, well, yeah, but um, all these companies have, you know, um, softwares for, um, pad, for, you know, um, pad takeover, you know, all you have to do is have a wireless, uh, system set up, you know, via Ethernet to your desk or whatever, and, you you know, you, you interface with that and you create a network and you can walk around, you know, there's a bunch of different, you know, VNC controller and there's different names, you know, like uh, there's a little bit different operating system for every one of these boards, you know, but they all essentially do the same thing, you know, same thing with these little controller programs. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty common thing. Some of these, you know, low level boards, it's interesting because they're putting the processor in the pad. So you have to have one like Mackie has one. I think it's got like uh, 16, you know, inputs and you have to have an iPad to run it because that's your interface. Um, actually, I did an interesting thing in Chicago around Lollapalooza where they did these um, shows, um, these flash shows for a, um, a taxi service that's been around for a while that's been uh, a little bit debated on how good it is or not but we did these pop-up shows where you were on the back of a truck and they would tweet that it was going to happen and a bunch of people would gather in a parking lot and you'd pull in in this truck and you'd have to go and i had an ipad and i'd run out in the street and do this mix off an ipad i don't like it i don't like the loss of tactile control personally uh-huh. but i come from background of physical instrumentation which is a string instrument so I think I always am going to want to touch something. It's different these days for people. I think it's amazing. You know, I could show you around. I've got all these great kinds of kinds of things sitting around. You know, here's a mixer, you know, Novation MIDI mixer for $160, you know. Right. This is pretty cool. This gives me that tactile control and lets this old guy get in on the, the feel he likes. Right. But, you know, for kids today, it's different. They're brought up on touch screens, and I think it's a natural progression, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, the recall is amazing. I don't think the sound quality is quite there, but, you know, I mean, it wasn't quite there on wax cylinder either. And we lived through that and got better. So, you know, <laughs> that's the whole yeah. point. You know, we can debate the quality. And I mean, you know, forever we'll want an XL4 up in front of house, a Midas XL4. You know, I'd love that, you know, great sounding desk. In the live world, is there a lot of isolation of, say, guitar amps backstage, mic'd up, 
you know, really nice a la studio. Uh, and also, is there a lot of uh, drum triggering going on? I mean, sure. There's there's all kinds of stuff like that that's been going on for, you know, for a super long time. Um, I personally, the way I've worked with the groups thus far, I, I, I like to really keep things very live, you know, personally. Um, I mean, it really comes down to resources once again, because, yeah, I mean, if I could afford to have another channel and a really nice preamp and a nice mic and an ISO box and an amp for it for that guitar to give me that ISO option, I, I would do it in a heartbeat, you know. All our musicians are on ears these days, which is a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a great thing because it allows you that separation and quietness on stage that allows you to actually do do so much more in front of house quality wise mixing. Um, Does it cause the musician to to lower their volume levels on stage? No. Well, what it can do is it can allow you to get a better tone without them having to raise their volumes on stage to hear themselves when they're 40 feet from their amp, you know? Oh. Because, you know, like if you're on Madison Square Garden and the guy runs across the stage 40 feet, you know, which is the length of his guitar cable to his pedal board, you know, or whatever, you know, max, you, you know, yeah. He needs to get that wireless too. See, there you go. The guitar cable needs to go wireless. But, you know, it's just a good example of, you know, like having that capability of giving them the consistency. The only, the downside to it that I see the technology is, well, not downside. I think one of the repercussions of technology that we see is so much more is being done on a timeline. I think this crosses over to studio as well. Um, You know, there's definitive difference between a feel session and a click session. Definitive difference between, you know, a live band and a band that's running sequences and and clicks where it's necessary, you Mm -hmm. know, for that to happen. So that's another reason to have that controlled environment. But what I see a lot is then you get musicians, what they do is they're, they're playing, they're getting their ears tailored to what they need to be able to play their part as best they can. But that's not really... is what is that? That's that's a can every night. That's not the difference that you're going to feel in every room you're in every night. You know, I mean, granted, so many rooms and scenarios are so bad. I guess you could maybe want to run away from that. You know, it's a tough world out there. You know, especially in certain size venues. You know, it's just the logistics of it and the costs. You know, and having a big enough space to fit people in a lot of times isn't very acoustically great. You know, so, but you know, you do it to have the show. But so you know, you get what you get is you get a lack of bands. I think on ears hearing only what they need to do their performance so you lose the live experience of interplay between musicians because they don't even hear some things because they never get it in their ears you Hmm. know such a dense mix you know say um i think you lose the ability to improvise you know if there's if it's on a static line where you have a whole sequence for a whole tune you know um that might not be what people want i don't know out front but i think it's an interesting part of the progression of technology and music. I think it's an interesting aspect to consider. And that's another thing to get into from live from studio. I mean, we've got to start taking into account there's so much um, happening in the box, in the computer um, that isn't live that, you know, to re-represent that live for musicians, you've got to, as an engineer, say you might do a session, you've got to make sure that, you know, part of that session you've got to take into account, okay, we're going to track these days we're going to mix these days you know it's going to be great and i've got to not not we're going to mix okay we're going to be done we're going to evaluate it's going to be great we're going to do revisions and we'll send it off to be mastered well you're missing one whole step which is going to be oh we've got to make the stems for the live show in the same environment using the same equipment because if you use that wonderful neve desk to do your mix and you lock down that studio for three weeks and then you walk away without making your stems using the same equipment grouped out, you know, mm-hmm. with the same kind of intention. You can't just create, recreate a record that a producer spent weeks crafting out of the, the raw tracks. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's another step that, you know, maybe people need to start taking into account. You know, there's a whole nother job that has just come up in the last bunch of years and it's called playback technician. And it's a guy whose job it is to manage the computer systems and sequencing systems. No, they're not performing. They're just managing it, setting it up, and monitoring it during the show. You know, there's equipment that's been specialized for redundancy. So you have an auto changeover if, say, a computer crashes. You know, you can buy this from Sweetwater, a radial auto switcher. Wow. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. That's a whole other job that's come up. So there's some interesting expansions in, in those two worlds as they kind of grow and mesh together, you know, and, and kind of relate to each other in terms of, of the technology and what we're doing. Well, speaking of job roles, do you 
in doing front of house, is it pretty common that you'll also double as tour manager? Or in the in- industry, in, in the industry, that is very common. Yes, uh, the roles have gotten tighter and things have shrunk. I am a extremely lucky anomaly, I think, at this point. In that, I mean, I have tour managed. I like. I did one tour, tour managing Fanagram and doing front of house. And I, I did a good job and everything balanced at the end and everything was fine. And they were happy with my work, but, um, you know, they, they were like, you were green, you were going to fall over cause you worked too much, you know? And I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, like four hours of sleep a night isn't so hot. Yeah, of course. You know, as you get it together, you get quicker and, and you get better at it. But I personally don't do it. That's why I'm the anomaly. I believe the art is the most important thing. Um, I think I'm, well, part of it is, I don't know, I hate to talk about age relations and stuff because I think that has nothing to do with your skill level necessarily, you know. Um, some of us take longer to get to certain points than others, but mm-hmm. I come from before the digital revolution, you know. So I get this kind of thing as an older guy of this being able to maybe try to keep myself close to the art like that. And it's worked out in my long-term relationships. I think that's another reason the long-term thing has worked for me is because, you know, it's very specific what I want to do and how I want to handle it. And, you know, it's not always the best thing to do financially, maybe, but it's, it's kept that career going. I guess that's a neat looking list of things that I did. I guess it depends on the level of the band, really, and the amount of tour support we're talking about. Do you end up talking with the band about money or is it naturally the management? I guess if, if there's no management, obviously you're talking to the band. In my scenario, it's progressed from working with the band to them being able to get to the point where, you know, we worked hard enough to get them to the level where we could afford management and expansion and further distribution, bigger record label or whatever to fulfill the needs, you know, for the for the touring or the touring to fulfill the needs of the distribution as well, you know, hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of always grown naturally that way. You know? I mean, it doesn't seem like you're working with bands like, or artists like Beyonce or somebody on, on that like uber high wide popularity level. But I'm curious just about like the day-to-day interaction. It's, it's like my limited experience with high level people has shown me that there's a lot of sheltering and a lot of go, uh, okay, well, if you're in the crew, just, you know, limit your amount of exposure to talking to the artist. And is, mm. have you encountered any of that? No, but as business grows, the the time of the artist becomes more and more stretched, I would say. So I, I wouldn't work with anybody who was a dick. Not, I mean, we all have our bad days. It's tough too, you know, sometimes, you know, you get a lot of great hardworking people together and they just don't click. It just happens that way sometimes. You know, it's hard to find that crew that's super click. So, and that includes the artists too, you know. That's another part of my whole growth thing is I met these people when they were touring in for Fanagram. I met them, they were opening up for another band I had picked up a tour for and they were touring in a Prius, just the two of them. They didn't have anywhere to live. They had their stuff in storage at their parents' house. So, you know, they'd crash their parents when they weren't touring. And these people toured for two years. And then, you know, the, it was interesting because the blonde redhead thing ended. And I thought, wow. And it was my fault that that ended. More or less, I, I couldn't get along with their management any further, you know. Okay. And they fired the management six months later. But <clears throat> anyway, um, <laughs> I couldn't get along with those people. And so, you know, I, I we had to move on. I had to move on. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get back to playing now. This is going to be great. You know, within a week, I spoke to Sarah from Fanagram on the phone. She's like, hey, Doug, do you want to tour with us? Oh, God. Okay. Well, you know, I, it was the same old story. It was like, okay, well, you know, I don't have anybody necessarily to play with right now. So I'll just do this for a bit while I get my music together. You know, here I am five years later coming off a 15 month hard run with them. And, you know, they're on Universal Republic now and we did a world tour or whatever. And, you know, it's just funny how that works out. But um, yeah, growing up from the ground. But yeah, as the time becomes less available for artists, it's harder for them to to be able to have that kind of peace a normal person has. So I guess I could see that. But different people are wired differently, you know? Yeah. All sports to the wheel, I guess, you know? And you might have a guy that's kind of a dark person, but he works out well on the tour because somebody's got to be the dark person. <laughs> you know? Somebody's going to play that role. Hateful, but like, you know, maybe they're a little moody or whatever. Maybe they're the quiet one or whatever. Yeah. yeah, as long as they do the job. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Obviously, you have to do your job, but I mean, it's there's 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 a lot more to it than that, man. Boy, the other job is being able to, you know, 
get along with, you know, 10 people in a box for however long, you know. I'm sure you love to travel in style, but that's not always possible. That'd be great. Most of the tours you do, are they on buses or or are they in vans or are they in Priuses? Well, well, that would be the kind of progression backwards there. You had Fanagram. They started in the Prius. I met them. They took me and a drummer on board, hired drummer. So they went to four and we did some vans. Actually, we had my van. I had a band van and we blew it up and left it in Tallahassee. Florida, no lie. That was that was pretty funny. And then we rented some stuff and finished the tour. But um, yeah, you know, we went through the van thing. And then, you know, you get to the point where you're doing such a big production. It's just about how much it costs to get everybody around and do everything. So, you know, you end up in the van with, the, you know, or the bus with the trailer because you bring in 10,000 pounds nearly of gear and lights and audio, you know, and 10 people. So, you know, it's cheaper to do a shower room and a night drive than it is to get five or six rooms and transport everyone. So it's just logistics. It's just as the growth happens and you can afford it, you do it. You know, don't don't spend money on things you can't afford to do. You know, that's the thing, especially now. I mean, you don't get big advances from record labels anymore. That's gone, you know, really to a degree. I mean, unless you're the top point, whatever percent, oh, 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 one percent. Are you going to get like a huge advance and what artists would want it you know you got to run on a budget like a smart lean business mm-hmm. to go for the long term you know it's like that's the thing i guess is business side of it you know and i'm sheltered i'm a weird dude who got away with being an artist i mean they want me because i can cons- consistently show up for 25 years and k- kick the hell out of it and do the best i can you know and i learn something every day you're married and you spend a lot of time on the road is yes. that, that obviously that's a challenge Yes. You know, if I may ask, how is that managed? Is it is technology your friend? Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I fired up Skype for this, which I hadn't fired up in a while just because we have, you know, FaceTime and all that other stuff that's come around the last couple of years. Um, but um, yeah, it was harder to have a relationship when I was touring in Europe before cell phones, right? But like, um, well, you could get one, but it was like, you know, a little briefcase with a phone attached to it. I would say it's just love and patience. And, you know, my wife and I, we met through, you know, an ad. I was looking for a band to play in. So, you know, she happened to be in the band. I thought she was really hot. So I wanted to date her. And then I found out she had a boyfriend. And so I kind of took off and went on tour for two years. And then I was working a show and she walked in the show. And then we got married like a year and a half later. So, (laughs) But she is as busy as me. She's an artist. She, um, We've done shows together. She's uh, a visual artist. Uh Um, She's got a couple of master's degrees. She teaches art in the public school system, you know, which is nice for us because it has allowed us uh, some insurance uh, avenues and stuff like that. It's a lot harder when you're independent out there, but that's why we went with that, you know, instead of me doing it myself. And um, she does video. She's a VJ. She does live video, Hmm. which is really interesting branch of technology that I got into in the mid-2000s doing audio and video sequencing. When I was in a band on a label called Emit Records out of Nottingham, and we were touring this band called 302 Acid. You can still get the music on iTunes, I think. But um, This yeah, is we, your band? Yeah, this was a band that I was playing in. Okay. In between Blonde Redhead tours. Oh, wow. Thousands. Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. They were making a record, and um, the singer was in an equestrian accident. So there was an extra six months because she, her jaw had been shattered, unfortunately. Yeesh. So, But she got over that. She's fine. During that time, I, I made a record and got on a label. And, you know, it was a band I had been in in between tours for a little bit. And then, you know, we kind of got a little more serious for a bit. You had made the comment about, you know, hey, you know, I'm not making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're on the road, is there, and you're making, you know, your money per week, you have your per diem, sometimes your buyout, and you do spend money on food. Is it easy to save money or is it not? Well, it depends, you know. It's very easy to spend money on the road, obviously, if you want to go to four bucks or Starbucks. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? Every time you go there, they call it four bucks or whatever, you know, and I'm always looking for good coffee and stuff like that as a a pastime, because once again, there's worse things you could get into, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just depends upon how you budget your, your, your life. You know, it's, it's, it's tough for me personally, because I'm have a mortgage and a car payment, which I'm paying off this year. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then there's those other considerations, but it's also easier in some ways because I have a very stable home life with my wife. 
And um, she takes care of a lot of things while I'm gone. She's very patient, you know. Um, she's just as busy as me art-wise. It's just her work keeps her home. So that's, right. that's how that works. With some of the band members this year uh, who were touring with uh, Fantagram, they just put their stuff in storage, canceled their leases, and we took off for a year of work, you know. And that's what we did. And in between, they'd stay with friends or parents or, or go somewhere, you mm-hmm. know, on break because it was only, you know, 10 days or 12 days or something. It's been a very busy year. So, you know, that's that's a way to save money. Minimize, to save money on the road, you've got to minimize your overhead like you do with any business, say. So keep your costs down, you know. Gear is awful tempting, but, you know, credit card debt can keep you from, from going and doing things that you might not, you know, because you're raising your monthly needs, you know, really look at your budgets, you know. What are you really spending per month? And if you want to buy a bunch of gear, you know, that might tie you down from being able to take that that tour because that tour doesn't quite pay as much. The problem with that is maybe that tour will be with that one artist and you meet that other artist and you spend 10 years with them. So there's some things to consider. It's very tempting for kids with audio schools and stuff. That's an interesting thing. I wish there was the audio schools available when I was younger. I mean, it was more Wild West. You know, you get the stuff and learn how to use it to a degree, you mm-hmm. know. Read the books, Yamaha Sound Reinforcement Manual or yeah, or whatever, you know, <laughs> or basic recording 101, you know, stuff you could find. But, you know, you had to, luckily we had that friend with that tape machine and that board, you know, and I had mics and outboard, you know, and we threw down. But, you know, these days you can get your hands into a lot. But, I mean, education is an interesting thing these days because as much as I still want to go to college or still would love to go to audio school to get my, uh, to get schooled, which is a good thing to get. You yeah. Know? No matter how old you are, you can always get schooled. And the costs of it have become nearly prohibitive to being able to start your career because with that kind of overhead starting a career, it's just crazy. You know? Yeah. So you got to minimize, you got to minimize what you, what you spend, you know, nobody uh, on the show ever talks about credit card debt and it's, 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 don't do it don't do it. I did it it screwed me up when i was a kid over 400 because <clears throat> i think i must have spent 800 dollars to pay off 400 dollars once i mean <laughs> if you have a plan like if i mean if you if you have a gig where you know what you're getting paid and you know you're going to get paid you have a decent rapport or contract or something where you know you're going to get a certain amount of money and you need a piece of gear to do it sure you got 30 days if you can do it get your invoice in and get paid and then pay for that piece of gear and have it for the future that's a good investment but you know buying an api four channel desk for sixteen thousand dollars might not be such a good investment for me even though i want one i think going in and out of computers a lot is I haven't had really the most fantastic results with it. And in order to get those fantastic results, it was always really expensive for the proper place and converters and gear anyway. So I think maybe a lot of starting guys, I mean, you got to get your, God, I hate to say this. It's so sad, but you know, like obviously beyond 101 gain stage and your basic uses of getting a preamp at the right level to get the sound you want out of it, whether it's crunchy or clean is, is one thing, but beyond that, you got to get your box chops because it's the same basic, it's the same, it's the same basic principles really that they're putting into effect, even though it's an emulation, you know. Oh, you mean if, your but your your box chops meaning in the box work? Yeah, in the box work, it's the cheapest way to go. I hate to say it because I'm such a diehard analog nut, but you know that's 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 the thing these days. But then again, you know, I mean, that's how old I am saying that. Like, of course, that's obvious. Kids are laughing at me right now. You know, I have kids come in to a show I'm working, this guy um, who's doing a little work with Fanagram, he's a great young young guy. He works in for the Showbox um, out, Showbox people out in, in, in the Northwest and tours a lot. And uh, he, he, you know, he had never been on an analog desk before and he had been working. And like, you know, he was with a buddy of mine, our, our production manager. And our production manager was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, my God. You know, he went to Showbox. They had a, a, a XL3 in there for a while. And he was like, I've never worked on an analog desk before. This is weird. It's like, really? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, they know that. But, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, like, my, my, my point in those box chops is, like, keeping that overhead down and having the most available to you, obviously, you know, working in the box is a lot more affordable than hardware for instances of things. And I think distance you can run on the buck. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it honestly, in my world, it, it helps me keep my overhead low, but my background is analog and 
I came into the digital thing as you have, and you know, I'm I'm at I'm at ease and at home in it now, and I'm 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 fine. But yeah, it's it's a different world. <laughs> but that's funny to hear yeah. of somebody going, oh, I've never ran on an analog board before. Yeah, well, it's it's happening. It's going to happen more. Yeah, it's okay. You know, it's just the way things are going. It's you know? the future, and yeah. To a degree. I mean, we'll see. I mean, I still think they're trying to figure out that medium point of tactile control. And then also, you know, where is the bit resolutions and things like that and quality of sound? Because obviously, you know, processing speeds and stuff and getting getting that amount of processing power up and getting those bit rates up so things can be processed that much faster and, mm-hmm. and, and more efficiently for for live use, you know, and things like that. So, you know. It's getting there. It's, it's doing great, you know. Sounds different, but it's 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 good. Awesome. Great to meet you and uh, reach out if you come to the Bay Area. Um, 2016, I'll definitely look you up because I'm, I'm sure I'll be out there working. Well, thank you for doing this. All right. Thanks so much. You have a great day. You I'm, too. Off to, I'm off to do 5.2 surround show. Oh, my God. Take Here we go. Well, first night of three. Pray for me. All right. Take care. All right, another interview down here for Working Class Audio 21, Doug Kalmeyer. We're out weekly every Monday. Next Monday is going to be no different. I got another guest for you. Of course I do. That's what I do. I get guests for you. Here's my usual plea for doing the social media thing. Instagram, if you're a Tumblr person, we're there. If you're a Twitter, Twitter person, we are there. Facebook, of course, we are there. We're now approaching the 1,100 likes on Facebook. Pretty impressive. That's it. See you next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 